Because I want to talk to you about puzzles. How many of you like puzzles? Let me see your hands. You are sick people. In 1974, a Hungarian created a puzzle that has frustrated and fascinated over 350 million people worldwide. This puzzle was simply a cube, this cube, with six different faces on it. And each face has nine segments. And the idea is to get all of one particular color on each face of the cube. You can manipulate it and turn it in different ways and try to get there. When you're done, it's supposed to look like this with all solid colors on each side. Now, it may seem easy, but it's actually very hard to do. The world record, however, is seven seconds flat. Somebody picking up one of these things mixed up and just, you know, whittling through the whole thing and getting it done. Now, I tried it once for about seven minutes and then I threw it away. But there are some people who are very good at this. And like I said, it's sold over 350 million. The inventor, Emo Rubik, has done very well with the Rubik's Cube. Let me ask you a little question. How many of you uh, have ever had one of these in your hands? Let me see your hands. Look at that. How many of you were able to solve it? Let me see your hands. How many of you who just raised your hands are telling the truth? Let me see your hands. Just kidding, all right? I'm, I'm absolutely amazed. What is it about puzzles that attracts us? I think what attracts us about a puzzle is the feeling and the idea that we can solve it. It just feels really good when you do something like that and you find the solution, you accomplish it. It's just a great, great feeling. But for the most part, puzzles are fun and entertaining. And if you can't figure out, if you're like me, you just throw it away or give it to the next person and let them waste their time with it trying to figure it out. But there are some puzzles in life that you cannot left that you cannot leave undone. They have to be solved. And one of those puzzles has to do with eternal life. See, all of us are going to die someday if Jesus doesn't come back, that's what I believe. And the question is going to be where are we going to spend our eternity? And do we even know how we're going to get there? Some people figure they've got it all planned out and they know the answers. But for many people today, that is a puzzle that seems unsolvable. Today, we're going to solve the puzzle of eternal life. And we're not going to use a Rubik's Cube, but we're going to use a different one, the one that you see in front of you right now. This will be our cube, and you'll also see it on our big cube behind me. And I want to talk about what we're going to call a sunset moment, and we all have these in our lives. And now I'm talking about that time in your life when your spirit and your soul catch up with each other. It's that time in your life when you kind of just ask yourself, is life just all about grades and school and a degree? Is it all about busyness? Is it all about trying to find success? What happens after this life? What happens when I die? Where am I going to go? And how am I going to get there? It's a question that plagues a lot of people. In fact, Gallup tells us that 81% of Americans believe that when they die, they're going to go to a place called heaven where they will come into the presence of an almighty being that we think of as God. What's interesting, though, is if you look at those same people who believe that they're all going to get to heaven someday, for them, there are many questions about how they're going to arrive there. And the most popular way that people describe getting to heaven is to say that, well, it'll happen through many different paths. 
In other words, there are a lot of people in America today who believe there's a, there's a heaven, who believe there's a God, but they believe there are all these different pathways, all these different roads or highways to God. And so you might go to God through Hinduism or Buddhism or Confucianism or some other ism. But people believe there are many paths. And it sounds good when you first hear it, but it contradicts what the Bible says. More importantly, it contradicts what Jesus said. John 14, 6, he said these words. Want to read them with me? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a very exclusive statement, isn't it? I mean, when Jesus said that, in essence, what he was saying is, all the other paths don't work. All the other paths are dead ends. In fact, there are other scriptures that talk about paths. Like in Isaiah the prophet, he wrote these words. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way or our own path. And the writer of the Proverbs, he accentuates that in chapter 14, verse 12, when he says, There is a path before each person that seems right, finish it with me, but it ends in death. He's not just talking about physical death. He's also talking about spiritual death or separation from God. So, you might be thinking to yourself, why don't all these paths work? Why, why aren't there many paths? And the answer to that question is because the paths that we tend to think of as avenues to God are man-made paths. Even these other religions are based on what men think and come up with with a certain kind of philosophy. And at the base of many of the pathways that people espouse today as the way that you get to heaven and the way that you come before God is an underlying premise that if I'm good enough, that God will accept me. So life is about trying to be as good as I can. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I think there are a lot of good people in the world today. I think there are a lot of good people in the western suburbs today. And I think some of the best are sitting in this room right now. But listen very carefully. As good as you and I may try to be, we know us the bad ones who get all the headlines, right? But even in our goodness, it's still not good enough. You say, why not? Well, here's what the Bible says. Paul tells us in Romans that no one is righteous or good enough. Not even one. For everyone has sinned. I'm one of those, all right? Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And what is God's glorious standard? His standard is perfection. And I have not met a perfect person yet. I've met some people who think they're perfect, but there's no such thing as a perfect person. I am the poster child to prove that. All right? I'm a sinner. I was born that way. I have a bent in my life toward what is evil and toward what is wrong. I struggle with it in my life, and so do you. And I can trace it all the way back to our first original parents, Adam and Eve, who rebelled against God. We're their children, and we're all related to each other here. And we all know we came from the same parent because we all share that bent in our lives to do what is wrong. So there's this gap then that exists between us and God And Jesus says, you cannot cross the gap on your own. You can't build your own bridge. You can't come up with your own way. It is a huge puzzle. It's a huge mystery we can't solve. But the good news is that God has solved that mystery for us. 
And the way he saw that was to send his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to reveal the Father's love to us and to make his life a sacrifice for our sins. John 3, 16, you know it? Read it with me, please. For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. You know, a lot of people when they think about Jesus they just, and they think about God, they think about judgment. But he didn't send his son in the world to judge the world. He sent his son in the world to save us. Paul adds on in Romans chapter 6 these words. He says, for the wages or the consequences of sin is death, physical, spiritual death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So picture Jesus. He's God's answer to the puzzle. He stands in the gap. He is crucified on a cross. And it's as though he takes my hand in one And his father's hand in the other. And through his sacrifice, he joins the two together so that we can have a relationship with the father and know when we die that we're going to go to heaven to be with him. And that's why for Christianity, it's not a bunch of rules and regulations. Christianity is all about a personal relationship with God's dear and only son, Jesus Christ. See, when I put my faith in Christ, what I'm saying is... I believe that Jesus died for my sins on the cross. I believe that my penalty and all my shame and guilt was placed on him. And I am forgiven. My slate is wiped clean. And that's, that's how I know I'll spend an eternity with him. You say, Pastor Dale, it sounds very good. But what if Jesus was wrong? What if he was just nothing more than a good moral teacher who went around doing wonderful good things? History has proven the fact that he existed like many other historical characters. But what if, what if he had this Messiah complex in his life and he just wanted so badly to see the world change that, that he talked himself into being God and he died? I mean, after all, he was buried in a tomb and you're absolutely right. And now we've got a puzzle again, don't we? How can he be, how can he be the son of God if he died and was put in a tomb? We know he died. We know the Romans speared him in the side, the blood and the fluid poured out. We know that... Um, They closed it with a large, heavy stone. We know his disciples went running because they were deathly afraid. They were next. They were convinced he was dead. And we know that the women were planning right after the Sabbath was over to go and somehow get that tomb opened up, maybe by the soldiers, post a guard over it, so they could finish the embalming process with the body. Everybody thought he was dead, but they should have known better. They should have known better because he had declared in his word to them earlier on that he would indeed die, but he would rise again on the third day. He told his friends that several times. Like in Mark chapter 10, we read in verse 33. Listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip and kill him. Finish the end with me. But after three days, he will rise again. But they just couldn't believe it because they saw him die. And they're thinking to themselves, well, how, how, how does he raise himself from the dead if he's, if he's dead? 
I love the Gospel of Mark, the last chapter, when we hear and see the picture of the women going to that tomb to finish the embalming process. It says in Mark chapter 16, verse 1, Saturday evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went to the tomb. On the way there, they were asking each other, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked. But the angel said, don't be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. And the joy that filled their hearts as they began to ponder and wonder, God solving the puzzle again. Christ is risen from the dead. That's why I believe when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. That's why I believe he's right. He proved it with his resurrection. He rose from the dead. Say, Pastor Dale, I'm glad you believe that. It sounds good to you. But there's some people who believe that Jesus did not rise from the dead. That he was either, you know, wounded and was able to recover and make his way out and he kind of fooled everybody. Or that his bones are still there. Wow, that takes a lot of faith to believe that stuff. I mean, Roman soldiers did not take half-living people off the cross and then dispose them. They were told to put them to death and make sure they died or their lives would be required of them. And do you honestly believe that Jesus, after the brutal beating he received, after the spear in the side, could have somehow regained consciousness, had the strength to roll the stone aside, slip past the guards, show up a few days later, and be okay? I don't think so. Well, he said, well, maybe his bones are still there. Then how do you explain all the witnesses who saw him after the resurrection. How do you explain how it changed their lives and how it has spread by the millions around this world? How do you explain his own apostles who went out and proclaimed the message of his resurrection? And so many of them were put to death for it. They were martyred for their faith. People don't die. People don't die for a lie. Maybe one or two crazies, but not that many people. They don't die for something they know is a lie. They have nothing to gain. They have everything to lose. And then what do you do with Jesus himself? Who spoke truth, those parables of his, those words of his, who did so many good things. Do you realize that if that is the case, that he's still dead today, that he knew he was lying the whole time? I mean, he would have to have been insane and crazy. It doesn't match up. All you got to do is look at the evidence. In fact, there are people who are skeptics, atheists, who tried to disprove Jesus' resurrection by going to the evidence and studying it, and their lives have been changed as a result. And as they encountered Christ, they were converted. One of them is from Chicago. His name is Lee Strobel. Listen to this atheist story of how his life was changed. But for most of my life, I was an atheist. I thought the idea of an all-loving, all-powerful creator of the universe, I thought it was stupid. 
I mean, my background's in journalism and law. I tended to be a skeptical person. I was a legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. So I needed evidence before I believe anything. One day my wife came up to me. She had been agnostic. And she said after a period of spiritual investigation, she decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I thought, you know, this is the worst possible news I could get. I thought she was going to turn into some sexually repressed prude who's going to spend all of her time serving the poor in Skid Row somewhere. I thought this was the end of our marriage. But in the ensuing months, I saw positive changes in her values, in her character, in the way she related to me and the children. It was winsome and it was attractive. And it made me want to check things out. So I went to church one day, uh, mainly to try to see if I could get her out of this cult that she's gotten involved in. But I heard the message of Jesus articulated for the first time in a way that I could understand it. That forgiveness is a free gift and that Jesus Christ died for our sins that we might spend eternity with him. And I walked out saying, I was still an atheist, but also saying, if this is true, this has huge implications for my life. And so I used my journalism training and legal training to begin an investigation into whether there was any credibility to Christianity or to any other world faith system for that matter. I did that for a year and nine months until November the 8th of 1981. And on that day, I realized that in light of the torrent of evidence flowing in the direction of the truth of Christianity, it would require more faith for me to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. Because to be an atheist, I would have to swim upstream against this torrent of evidence pointing toward the truth of Jesus Christ. And I couldn't do that. I was trained in journalism and law to respond to truth. And so on that day, I received Jesus Christ as my forgiver and as my leader. And just like with my wife, my life began to change over time. My values, my character, the purpose of my life began to be transformed over time in a way that, as I look back, I can't imagine staying on the path I was on compared to the adventure and the fulfillment and the joy of following Jesus. So what's your story this morning? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? If you have, then you know where you're going. And you know where you're going to spend eternity. You know how you get there. It's through Him. But perhaps you're here today and you're unsure. You don't know if you've ever really put your faith and trust in Christ. Or you know that you haven't. It still seems like a puzzle. How do you answer the question? It's not that hard. Once again, it's just a matter of coming back to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they're acknowledging that I am like, like me. You're like me. I'm a sinner. And that I cannot save myself. And acknowledge the fact that God sent His Son to die on the cross for me. And accepting that. Accepting His forgiveness. Believing that He took my shame and my guilt and my pain on Himself. Paid the price for me. And now when God looks at me, he looks at me through his son. Do you know that when God looks at you and me now, he sees us as innocent, as perfect. Not our perfection, but he sees us as perfect through his son, as his filter. And that's why he can accept us. That's why a relationship to Jesus is what it's all about. Not rules and regulations, but a relationship to a living God who demonstrated the height of love by sacrificing his beloved son himself for each one of us. And I just have to be able to put my pride aside and say, I'm going to trust you. How do you do that? The answer is very, very simple, actually. It's a matter of responding to his invitation. 
It's a matter of placing our life in his hands. I have two grandchildren, my granddaughter, my grandson. And one of the things I love to do is when their parents have them or grandma has them, I love to go up and offer my hands. And I love it when they lean away from their parents or lean away from grandma and go to my arms. That's a good feeling. And, they, and I hold them there and I can just tell they're trusting my love and trusting my strength. That's what God is doing this morning. Through his son, Jesus Christ, he's offering his arms and he's saying, will you leave whatever you've been trusting and will you trust me alone? Will you trust that I love you? Will you trust that I've forgiven you? Will you trust me with your shame and guilt that I'll wipe it away? Say, oh, Pastor Dale, I would love to do that, but man, I gotta go over here and clean my act up. I gotta issue my marriage. I gotta issue with my job. I gotta issue with my attitude. Hey, that's the wrong way to think. Because what you're saying is, I need to get good enough first. You can't get good enough. See, God says, come just as you are with all the stuff, and I will clean you out from the inside out. I'll make the transformation. So does that mean I'll never sin again? No. Does it mean I have a license to sin? No. It means that when he comes into your life, he'll start to change you from the inside out, and you'll begin to grow in him. You'll have moments of relapse, yes, but you're his child. He'll keep working your heart to one day you stand like I will in heaven, and he'll make you complete. Man, that's a lot to look forward to, isn't it? But right now, the good news is God loves you, and God has forgiven you. And today, this Easter, what a better time if you're unsure or you've never put your faith in Christ. Oh, what a day to do that. To just give him your entire heart and soul. Just take that step forward by faith. You're all exercising faith right now. Those of you who are sitting in the chairs. You haven't thought to yourself, I hope this chair holds me up. You just sat in it. All your weight's there. Listen, God's asking you to transfer the weight of your trust from whoever, whatever it's been, to him. The church can't save you. Some ritual in Your past can't save you. Being born into a Christian family can't save you. It's your relationship to Jesus Christ that gives you that assurance. And when you invite him in, he begins that process of change. And you become eternally his. This morning, if you're here and you are unsure whether you have ever placed your faith in Christ, whether you have that personal relationship with him or not, I want us to get rid of your doubts right now, right here. And I want you to be sure. If you're here today and you know, you know, like, I have never done that, then let's do it today. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes, ask that nobody move, volunteers stay. And I just want this to be a sacred moment between you and God, me, you and God. If you have doubts, if you're unsure, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, then you're ready to, then say this simple prayer silently to the Lord with me. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I cannot make my way to heaven. No amount of my goodness is going to qualify. Religion can't save me. But Jesus Christ, you have. And I am thankful. I ask you to forgive my sin and my pride. Today I transfer my trust to you. God, help me. I'm weak. Thank you that you'll be patient with me. But today I want to follow you. I give you my heart. Come into my spirit. 
Father, for everyone who's prayed that prayer on the floor, in the balcony, perhaps out in the atrium, Lord, I just pray right now, just through the power of your Holy Spirit, come into their lives and give them the assurance that they are yours. And I'm here to tell you right now, you don't have to wait for some tingle or for some, you know, vision. By faith, if you put your heart into his hands today, if you put your life in his hands today, you're his and nobody will ever take you out. If you were to die today, you have the absolute assurance that you're going to be with him. We want to give you an opportunity like we do every year to respond as many have already done so since last night, early this morning, to respond by coming forward and uh, we've got a little taste of heaven for you in that big cube behind there. We've got some neat things in there. We'd like to walk you through that. Then we have a hallway for you to walk through, a hallway of hope. And then there's some counselors on the other end for children, for students, and for adults. And they're there simply to encourage you and pray with you. Nothing weird's going to happen in there or out there, all right? If you brought friends and family and they go through, you can meet them out there uh, behind the doors. If you're in the balcony... Just come on down the steps and come through the door. You're included. You're part of this. If you can't walk upstairs, there's a a ramp over here to my far left. Just go through the ramp behind our singers here and onto the stage. I'm going to stand here to start with, to greet the first person who comes up, to take you to the cube. And I'm going to stand up there and just bless and greet each one of you that comes in. If you prayed that prayer today, I want you to have the courage to step forward. We're going to applaud for you. We're going to rejoice with you. You say, oh man, I wish I'd prayed that prayer. Now I wish, could you do it again? Hey, listen, do it by stepping forward. That will be your declaration. And the counselors will be there to help you and encourage you. God loves you today. Look what he did for you. Don't refuse it. Let's all stand together. And as we begin the music and begin to sing, who will be first to come down and say, today is my day. I gave my life to Christ. You come.